Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 64. I want there to be an asexual inclusive theology that doesn't come with the risk of somebody using it to be sex negative. Victoria Slabinski is a queer, demisexual Filipino-American Christian who is currently working towards a Master of Divinity at Yale Divinity School. She founded Progressive Christian Students, an intersectional feminist, LGBTQ affirming and theologically inclusive student organization at Miami University, and she's working on creating a similar campus-wide organization at Yale. Victoria hopes to explore asexual and aromantic inclusive queer theologies while she's at Yale, and theologies related to decolonizing and reclaiming efforts by Christians of color. Uh, Victoria did want me to point out that she is not a romantic herself, uh, but is very passionate about including a romantic persons in our theological worlds. In October, Victoria co-led the Reformation Project's first workshop on asexual and aromantic identities, uh, and her lifelong goals are to build welcoming communities, do faith-inspired social justice work, and pursue her values of authenticity, courage, and joy. I'm so excited to have Victoria on the podcast today. Uh, when Queerology had its first episode about asexuality a uh, month, month and a half ago with Bailey Bronner, there were so many people who reached out saying, we need more of this. We need more of these conversations. Uh, so, so this is next in that context. And hopefully, again, there are going to be many more to come. Before we jump in, registration is open for Q Christian Fellowship's conference in Chicago, happening January 10th through 13th. I'm going to be doing a live recording of Choreology there, as well as a workshop on developing sustainable resiliency practices. 
Uh, there's so many good things. I know Kevin Garcia is going to be doing some workshops uh, and a live recording of his podcast, as well as Jennifer Knapp, uh, Nicole Garcia speaking, Gunger is performing. Uh, it's going to be so much fun. Uh, so to find out more and to grab your tickets, head over to qchristian.org and we'll see you there. Let's go ahead and dive in. Victoria, hi. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast finally. Like it's it's taken a little bit of work. <laughs> Exciting to be here. Yeah, cuz cuz we were for people who who don't know, we were supposed to do this live at the Reformation Project back in October and obviously that didn't happen. Uh so here we are and I'm yeah. excited. Uh, so to start, the question I ask everyone, uh, how do you identify and then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? So I am a uh, biracial, second-generation Filipino-American woman. Um, in terms of sexuality, I identify as queer when I'm not being specific, um, but specifically as demisexual and pansexual. And I think I might be the first person to identify as demisexual on the podcast, so I'll just give a little definition. Um, demisexuality is an orientation under the asexual umbrella, um, and it's a term for someone who only experiences sexual attraction within the context of a strong emotional or, or romantic bond. Um, so when combined with pansexuality, that means that theoretically I could be attracted to someone of any or no gen- gender, but usually I'm not attracted to anyone. And I identify as Christian. So I was raised Catholic, um, was a non-denominational evangelical for about two years. Um, I still don't really have a denomination that I align with, um, but I've learned that non-denominational is typically means something specific. So um, now I just say I'm a free agent. (laughs) Um, I didn't make that up. One of my friends had that idea (laughs) of sounding a little bit more positive than, oh, I don't have a denomination. And I experienced my identities as all informing each other. Um, My acceptance of my Filipino identity and the realization of my sexual orientation coincided with my faith journey and have been an overall movement towards uncertainty combined with possibility and hope. Oh, I love that. Uncertainty combined with possibility and hope. Can you tell me a little bit more about that journey? Because I would imagine it's been... It has been a journey. Like, yeah. <laughs> you just said that. But <laughs> I'm a person who likes to always be really prepared, always know what's next, um, make sure that, like, my beliefs or, like, what I know is all the right things. Um, and I think there's just this human tendency to like to have neat little boxes to categorize everything and precise definitions. But a lot of my identities don't really fall into those neat little boxes. Um, So I'm in some in-between spaces with race or sexuality or faith with not not having a denomination. So that was a source of tension for a long time and still can be um, with thinking about, so what identities am I allowed to claim? What communities am I allowed to be a part of? So it's been a journey of learning to hold everything with open hands and see faith as being important um, because uncertainty can be an idol 
But faith for me is about knowing that I'll never have all the answers um, about God or maybe even about myself. Um, So my goal now is just to carve new spaces for people after me who also don't fit neatly um, into the categories or stories that have been given um, and just looking at the present moment with a sense of possibility. So, I mean, so you just started doing uh, an MDiv at Yale Divinity, right? I did. I'm in my first semester. Congratulations. That's, Thank you. <laughs> that's amazing. I, and, it, and it sounds like a lot of the work that you're wanting to do in that space is to kind of do more theological work in those spaces of uncertainty or, or unknown, like you're talking about, mm-hmm. specifically around like asexual and aromantic identities, um, theological works. And I, I would love to hear about some of that. Yeah. Um, so I've been interested in queer theology for a while, um, even before I was out to myself and aware of my own queer identity. But it can be difficult looking at queer theology and realizing that my identity isn't really included in it. A lot of, while queer theology isn't really asexual or aromantic inclusive at the moment, and I remember one time I was searching to see if like asexual theology existed Um, And there's like a few people who are sort of starting to do work in that field, but really nothing that exists in the literature yet. And I feel like there's a balance to be found because a lot of the beauty of queer theology is challenging sex negativity within Christianity. And I want there to be an asexual inclusive theology that doesn't come with the risk of somebody using it to be sex negative or like undo the work that queer theology has done. And I'm not really sure what that's going to look like yet, but it's definitely something that I want to explore. So, so tell me a little bit about like, like, because you're right. Like, I feel like most, most queer theology, at least the stuff that I have read have been, I mean, obviously very heavily leaning towards the white gay male experience. And then there's a a large kind of more womanist queer theology emerging. But a lot of those, you're right, focuses on sexual orientation being sexual. Like, I mean, you just said this, there, there isn't much asexual, aromantic literature out there. In your mind, like what would what would be some of the tenets of a of an asexual theology? I'd love to hear about some of some of that work. Um, I think part of that would just be um, articulating what the need for it is, um, because there's a lot of misconceptions around asexuality of thinking that asexuality is just the same thing as celibacy, or confusing asexuality with like internalized purity culture, like internalized sex negativity. So I think first challenging those misconceptions would be important. But something that I've been really inspired by lately is a dissertation that I read about asexuality and religion um, by someone named um, Lachelle Schilling, um, because this is just what I do in my free time now. (laughs) But she made use of the essay Uses of the Erotic by Audre Lorde, which is in Sister Outsider. Um, And she made use of it in like a theoretical way that's really affirming of asexual identity and experiences um, that I hadn't thought of before I read her work. But in Audre Lorde's essay, 
Um, there's this idea of the erotic as meaning like human passion or embodiment or joy, um, non-rational knowledge, or just allowing oneself to feel. Um, and in the essay, she looks at the compartmentalization of those experiences as being located only within the, the realm of the sexual as being a problem and how these are aspects of the human experience that should be allowed to impact all parts of our lives. And I think there's a lot of possibilities within that um, for moving towards an asexual or aromantic inclusive theology that is not leaning back into like purity culture, sex negativity. Yeah, because I mean, you're, you're talking about how asexuality often can get conflated with celibacy or, or like you said, internalized sex negativity. Can you speak more about that? Because that's something that I feel like is a key distinguishment. Yeah. Um, so people who are asexual or aromantic aren't a monolithic group. So there's a lot of different exp- uh, diverse experiences within that group. And one of the ways that people try and like label or make sense of their own experiences is um, there's terms like sex favorable, sex neutral, or sex repulsed, um, or like similar terms with romance that asexual or aromantic individuals can use to describe their personal feelings towards sex. So you could have any of those feelings personally, but still be sex positive generally. And I think people can be confused by thinking that what someone personally feels is like how they approach sex or romance personally is how they feel about that morally. Um, And that's not the case. And actually, I think most people who are asexual, or at least all of the people who are asexual that I know, um, are sex positive and are very affirming of like the other letters of the LGBTQ plus acronym. And I think there's a need within the asexual community to allow space for people to sort out for themselves. Like maybe they do have some kind of internalized homophobia or internalized sex negativity. And that's something that they can work through but that's different from an asexual identity. So so you're, you're using the terms like sex negativity and sex positivity a lot. Um, and I'd, I'd be curious, like those those terms have very specific meanings in specific circles. And, and I would imagine there are people out there listening who are like, what do these things mean? Probably general ideas, but I would love if you could maybe talk a little bit more about like sex negativity and purity culture and sex positivity and, and yeah. how those things inform and and intersect with your work? So sex negativity and purity culture, I guess those aren't exactly the same, but they're very close. Um, Where purity culture is the idea that sex is only okay if it's within a marriage between a man and a woman and anything else is sinful and dirty. And that's, I think, really similar to sex negativity, which is just seeing sexuality as being dirty or impure, whereas sex positivity is, I guess, just the opposite of that, of not seeing sexuality as making one dirty or impure. And I think that should be ace-inclusive, and it often is, uh, with the idea of healthy sexuality can be 
different things for different people. Like it doesn't have to mean that one is sexual. Like it's also okay if a person is like asexual and doesn't experience sexual attraction. But regardless of what somebody's orientation is or what somebody's feelings or not feelings of attraction are, those aren't tied to somebody's morality or that person's worth or how like in quotes pure that person is that's such an important such an important point like and that idea that that sex positivity needs to be ace inclusive for it to actually be sex positivity that that feels key yeah and i think sometimes that can go the other way like it can get so far away like going in the opposite direction of purity culture, that it becomes unhealthy in a different sort of way, where um, how progressive you are can be tied to like how sexual you are with that almost being, um, I've had a friend describe this as like sexuality as being a sort of like social currency, which is also harmful, but just in a different way. Um, So I think ACE inclusion is really necessary for like a sex positive view to be as healthy as it can be. I'd be curious because you also mentioned that a lot of your work focuses on like colonialism and and pre-colonial queerness. And, and I'd be interested in hearing about like, have you found intersections between, this is a very broad question, <laughs> but <laughs> intersections between like sex positivity and colonialism, um, or, or I guess maybe the better question would be sex negativity and colonialism. Um, and also asexuality and aromanticism. Do those things fit together? Um, so for the first part of this, looking into like scholarship around pre-colonial Philippines has been something I've been interested in for the past year. And it's not something that I've been able to find a ton of information about. And a lot of it is reading between the lines because it's really difficult to find information of how things were before colonization. But I did read this really great book that was called Holy Confrontation, which was about the impact of colonization and forced conversions to Catholicism on religion in the Philippines, where in the pre-colonial Philippines, according to this book, uh, religion was primarily led by women and people who today we might view as like trans women or trans feminine individuals, but I'm like really unsure about like terminology because it's like a different time period and a different culture. So those terms aren't quite correct, but there's this idea that so Catholicism um, and colonization together marked sexuality as was expressed in like the pre-colonial culture as wrong. And condemned the existing religions as like in quotes like demon worship and um, forced um, conversions to Catholicism where only men were allowed to be priests but not even Filipino men but only the men who were the colonizers were allowed to be priests and only Filipino men later on so I guess that's how that relates to sex negativity and I'm not sure how asexuality and aromanticism fit into all of this. I would love to find a way to bring everything together, um, but that's not something that I've come across yet. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I feel like that kind of highlights this point that I feel like you've kind of been making the whole episode is that there's not a whole lot of work out there around mm-hmm. asexuality and a and aromanticism. And, and I would imagine as, as a scholar, as someone who's trying to like step into and start filling this void, that poses a, a difficulty for you. Um, what mm-hmm. has it been like just even trying to start doing this work? It can be frustrating because I think you typically think of scholarship as like, I've heard the analogy of like a brick wall where everyone's scholarship is like a brick and you don't want to build the whole wall with your scholarship, but you see the work that's been done before and you focus on a narrow area that's of interest to you and you build off the work of other people. And that's like your little brick in the wall. But then what do you do if there's no wall yet? And there's a lot of like reading between the lines. Um, Like when I mentioned like pre-colonial gender in the Philippines, I haven't really found anything that's specifically about that, at least not within academia. And I was getting that mostly from Bianca Louie's workshop and TRP um, from a while ago, where she had mentioned pre-colonial queerness in different Asian countries. Or like with asexuality and aromanticism, I really just know that one dissertation that I mentioned And I've been trying to sort of follow some of the steps of that other author, like how she had mentioned the uses of the erotic by Audre Lorde. I think this relates a lot to what I was talking about earlier of like stepping into uncertainty um, and believing that there is like a sense of possibility and hope in all of this, where even if you are having to carve a new space, the space that I want to like carve a space for the people that are after me. And maybe my work is not going to be perfect and I'm not going to be able to like build this whole wall of scholarship by myself, but I want to start it. I mean, that feels like such deeply important and, and needed work. So I like, yay, good for you. <laughs> That's, that is a huge task ahead of you to, to, to jump into that. And, and my goodness, like, Thank you for doing that. I, I'd be curious, like, what can asexuality and, and aromanticism and uh, like everything that you're kind of talking about? What do you what do you think that can tell us about the nature of God and and our faith? That's a good question. I think it's important to consider all of the identities that we can hold as human beings, because if we are all created in the image of God, then if you are excluding some of our human identities, then we're not really getting a complete picture of who God is. Something I've been thinking about lately is the need to move beyond inclusion. Um, So not just thinking about what can queer Christian, how can we include queer Christians within the church, but how can queer Christians transform the church? And like thinking about that same idea, but with asexuality, like not just how can I make sure that queer theology includes individuals who are aromantic or asexual, but how can those identities transform the way that queer theology is done or lead to new understandings about God? So I think some of this relates to uh, like sexual ethics, but it doesn't necessarily just have to be about sexual ethics. It could be all sorts of ways about how do we relate to one another? How do we relate to God or how does God relate to us? I, I love that idea of 
of of needing to move beyond queer inclusion. And I'd love it. Like, could you maybe say more about that? Because, like, I, I feel like this our, the conversation for so long has been focused on. Well, I, I feel like the progression in my mind has been like we have to tolerate queer people. <laughs> to yeah. we have to include queer people. To now that at least there are some communities who are inclusive. What, what in your mind does that next step look like? Like, what is a a more than inclusive space? There was a book I read um, last summer that I really liked. Um, It was called Queer Virtue by Elizabeth M. Edmund. And while while it wasn't asexual inclusive, um, I resonated with a lot of it um, because that book was about the parallels between like Christian values and LGBTQ plus identity. And how there's all these overlapping themes of like authenticity or community, courage. And I think a lot of ideas expressed in that book are the ideas I'm thinking of how can we not just be included, but like revitalize the church or transform the way that church is done, expand the ways that we think about God. I love I love that book. <laughs> it's so, yeah. it's so good. Um, I, like, I, and I feel like I'm 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 hearing this kind of this need for like not just inclusion but like maybe transformation. Like I I don't know if I'm if I'm hearing that that well, but yeah. this idea that that uh, that if if queer people are truly going to be a part of our faith communities, then that inclusion needs to transform the way the way our faith looks the way our theology looks like do, is that a good summary like yeah and i remember um so when i was attending church when i was living in chicago last summer i attended urban village church and it was a very lgbtq plus affirming space i was attending right in pride month in june and i think that experience of being in an incredibly affirming and diverse church was what restored my faith and like organized Christianity and like the church as an institution of, I was just impressed by like, oh, this is such a vibrant community. It's really involved with the surrounding community. People are being invited in. There are like queer Christians and different ministries and like positions of leadership within the church. And I didn't know that church could look like this. And it felt totally different from other church spaces I've been in and like gave me hope for like, this is what Christianity could be. Um, if it wasn't just you are tolerated in this space, but you are an essential part of our community and we value the gifts that you bring. And uh, this is your community. This is making me think of this this conference that I was at this summer where like the the theme of like the whole weekend was kind of this idea of spiritual giftings that that queer people hold uh and and what queer people can bring to faith communities and I'd be curious like in thinking about that and in, in, in your experience at Urban Village which is like yeah they're like one of the few churches in the U.S. that are doing this very 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 well 
what what are some of these the spiritual giftings of queer people, asexual people, aromantic people? What can we bring to a faith community that brings us more fully into like th- this image of God? That that is a roundabout question. <laughs> so are you asking like what specific gifts to that we are bringing to Christianity? Yeah, yeah, yes. That's yeah. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, creativity of bringing new interpretations to biblical stories is a big part of it, but also just realizing the importance of like authenticity within one's own life and in striving towards like joy and hope. There was one article about asexuality, um, an asexual interpretation of Jesus's mother, Mary, that I really loved. Um, where this article was imagining uh, Mary as like Elizabeth wanting a child before she was ever told that she would have one, um, but thinking that she wouldn't have a child because of her own, like her own asexuality, um, which asexuality is different for different people. But in this particular narrative, the virgin birth is seen as being holy, not because Mary's sexuality is being denied, but because her sexuality is being honored by God. Um, And I'd never thought to look at that biblical story in that way before. Uh, But I guess that's just one example of how people who have different identities and different experiences can bring something totally new to the way that we look at our holy texts and can really bring new insights into how we view God's work in the world. I mean, when when you said when you said that about Mary, I I, I got chills just thinking about that. that. That is beautiful to think about that idea of of God honoring her sexuality. You're mentioning creativity, and you haven't said the word imagination, but but it's it's kind of in everything that you're saying. These ideas of creativity and imagination coming together to bring new insight to the text. And 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 you're a theologian, and and like as a theologian i feel like there's there's a certain amount of like play and 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 creativity and imagination that that can go into working with these texts but but i feel like the world that that i grew up in especially which was kind of con- conservative world there wasn't that freedom to get creative with the text and and i'm curious like as as someone who has has stepped into this role of getting creative and and letting there be some air within our theology. I mean, can you speak to that a little bit? Like, like the, both like the fear that can come to like, or the rigidity of, of working with a text, but also the space. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I'll, just, I'll start answering and then you can tell me if you meant something. Okay. Different. <laughs> <laughs> um, first off, I like that you called me a theologian. I feel like I don't really (laughs) think of myself as that, but I like that. And I had also come from at least being theologically conservative for a certain time of my life um, and seeing faith as being, um, or like Christianity as being knowing all the right answers about faith and making sure that I knew all the right doctrines and believed all the right doctrines and was able to articulate them to anyone who might ask me. And like my faith journey, like moving away from that is I was still stuck on that idea of I have to have all the answers. I just need to have all the progressive answers and thinking that, okay, I know all these conservative interpretations. Now I just need to 
find the progressive interpretations and make sure that I understand those and believe those and can articulate them to anyone who could, who would ask me about them. But as I read some more um, of what other people studying theology were saying, um, I realized there's not just like a single progressive interpretation of any given biblical story or, or passage. People have different identities and different life experiences and all approach the, te- the same text in different ways and find all these different insights. Uh, and there's not one that's necessarily more valuable or more true than other ones. So when I look at something with my experience, I can think like, this is how I interpret this text. And um, maybe this isn't the same way that somebody who's has different identities from me will interpret this text. And it's not really about arguing which one of us is right, but realizing that we are both in the image of God and we can't just erase the insights that are brought by this person with other identities. And they're all revealing something about who God is. I mean, it seems like there's a lot more freedom in that to just... I mean, like it, like there's there's an openness in there that feels really beautiful. I feel like I say the word beautiful a lot on this podcast, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So, so so I'm curious, and and maybe to to start wrapping up a little bit. So this is like the second episode that that we've done on asexuality and, and aromanticism, and like with the first one back with Bailey a, a couple months ago. I was shocked at the response and the number of people who reached out who were like, there's literally no one talking about this. And I had some idea, but like really had no idea. Like, <laughs> that, and I was really that, excited when I heard that podcast. Yeah. And, and we, we need to be talking about these things, but for, for people who like, this is a new concept to who, who are maybe just waking up to the idea that, oh, I'm asexual or I'm aromantic or both. What would you have to say to those people who are trying to figure this out for themselves? First off, to know that you are not broken. This is your identity and not something that is wrong with you. I will say that labels maybe aren't helpful for everyone, but they are helpful for a lot of people for finding community. So I would encourage people to explore those, but with the knowledge that your labels can change over time um, because sexuality is fluid or you might learn more about yourself over time. So it's okay to have a label because that label provides you community and change it later if you find out that it no longer fits your experience. I would say definitely look to the resources that are there. Um, there aren't a lot of resources within theology yet, um, but there are a lot of great communities um, and online ways to find ways to find support, like the Asexual, which is an online journal that just started. But just know that your identity does not make you broken and that you are created in the image of God. And there are a lot of people out there who want to love and support you in whatever your identity is. And, then, and how can people find your work? Um, so I'm on Instagram at uh, Victoria Slavinsky. 
I am going to have a blog very soon, hopefully yes. in December. <laughs> it's not out yet, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I will post about it on my Instagram. Yay. Oh, I'm, I'm excited about that because I will definitely be reading. So thank you so much, Victoria. Yeah. This has been absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you for having me. You can find Victoria on Instagram at Victoria Slabinski. That's Victoria, S-L-A-B-I-N-S-K-I. Be sure to keep an eye out for her new blog. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is supported by its listeners. You can help keep spreading a message of love and belonging to thousands all over the world by pledging a dollar or more a month over at MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to support Corology is by leaving a rating or a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on an episode or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye! Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 